to Revelation chapter 1. I, I gotta tell you, this is exciting for me. I love this. Um, it was a challenge for me this week because uh, not only did I have to do this, but I have to do tonight, and that was a challenge to have to do both and then do the counseling that I do and all of the other stuff and keep my wife in line. All of that was very... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I think she said you should be shy, but I think it was you should be shot. But it, anyway, uh, here we are at Revelation chapter 1. And we want to talk about Revelation uh, and, and how much this truly is a blessing for us to hear this. The, the apostle is incredible as we approach this portion of scripture. In a sense, there's a solemnity to it. There's, there's a reverence to it that needs to be there because of what's coming. And he knows what's coming because remember last week we even said he's already seen it. And so he's writing this, and he's adding what I would call a pastoral flavor to it. Pastoral flavor means that the pastor cares about you. He, he's willing to take your hurts. He's willing to sit down and listen to your problems. He's willing to take the time with you. And John gives us that kind of flavor here in his writing. And he says this, John is approaching this, this portion of Scripture with great dependence upon the divine Godhead. He knows he's been directed by God to do this, and so he's taking that into consideration. He is making sure none of him comes across, but all of God. You know, the, the temptation for anybody who gets up here is to talk about themselves, you know? Sometimes I even think of what I want to say on Sunday, and then I go, oh, but Bill, that's all about you. Why, why are you doing that? And I, I personally admonish myself, you know, stop it, Bill. Get out of it. You need to get out of it. And I think all of us should take that into consideration. Even when we're talking with people, we're always talking about ourselves. And, and John doesn't do that. He's not here to write about himself. He's not here to give self-promotion. Look what I did here. Look what I did there. Look what I do here. Look what I do there. No, he's not doing that. He's uh, gone over these things that uh, I began to think, and I, I want to communicate in such a way that I get me out of it and that I put Christ and truth in it. That's what, that's what John does, and that's what I want to do. John here does not have that problem, at least I don't see it. He directly goes to the source, and he blesses the churches. He gives praise and divine um, admonition to all that God has done. We need to sit back sometimes and just look at what God has done in our life. Just to be uh, cautious and reverent towards God. We, we can't come to him without having our hearts already moved to love him. Let's read Revelation chapter 1. And we're only going to do one th uh, 4 through 6. I'd love to do the whole part. I wanted to do 4 through 8, but I am not going to have enough time uh, nor are you. But Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us, from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, just as we approach this very important portion of the text, it talks about you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We are in awe of what you've done in our lives. We're thankful for what you've done in our lives. I pray that everyone here knows you intimately, closely. I pray, Lord God, that you continue to work in our lives in your name. Amen. As you can see from the opening here, um, in this verse here, the author names himself, but he doesn't elaborate on who he is. We mentioned that last week. There's no reason to elaborate on who he is. He's one of the apostles. He's the last one of the apostles. He needs no introduction. John does not need to articulate who he is. 
John is writing to the seven churches. We talked about that a little bit last week. We'll get more intimate in uh, that in the weeks ahead. John knew more uh, churches than these seven churches. Realize he served in the church in Ephesus. So Ephesus would know all of the other churches in that area, at least in Turkey. And he's left out places like Colossae, which is just, uh, to me, is astounding that he would leave that out. But he's not the one picking out the churches. He's not the one picking out the people to hear this message. It's being done by Jesus Christ himself. He had close relationships with some of these people. He knew them intimately. But he chose these seven churches. Why would he choose these, especially these seven churches? I believe the Lord picked these out, obviously. He picked out these churches because they represent, now listen to this, folks, seven, seven different conditions within churches. And that would be throughout history. Those seven kinds of churches that are there are representative, okay, it's, you know, the number seven, so it's complete. It's going to show you the pictures of the churches. I don't know if you saw it this week, but I was watching this uh, Facebook uh, film on what this church was doing with these people that were drummer boys and they were flying in on the church service. And I went, oh, you got to be kidding me. They got the name Jesus in the background, but nothing else was Jesus. Had nothing to do with what Jesus does. But they're flying around and they're entertaining people is what they're doing. But that's like one of these seven churches. And we'll get to those more intimately later on. When it comes to churches, there is a general, and I want you to understand this, there is a general what I call culture around the church. I've been to a lot of different churches, whether it be here in America or in other countries. The culture of Grace Community Church, if we were to have a culture at Grace Community Church, and we do, is not going to translate well into a desert community. You're not going to be out there in the desert with your cowboy hats and cowboy boots and playing the fiddle and try to emulate Grace Community Church. The, the preaching you may be able to emulate, and you should, but the culture of the church is different. Uh, we happen to go to a church that's out in the desert. They don't wear jackets and ties like we do at Grace Church. This is just something that we do here Matter of fact, believe it or not, don't tell anybody, but we try to do a Sunday evening without wearing our dyes. <laughs> do you know those guys couldn't do it for too many weeks? They had to put the tie back on. As Jay Adams says, we're choking ourselves to death. But, you know, it's, it's just something that, was, that we do around Grace Church. This is what's here. And, and, and it's nothing wrong with it, folks. It can be different in different places. The preaching needs to essentially be the same thing. You're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beyond the differences in culture and, or music, there are other different emphases in different churches. There may be men's groups, women's groups, those kinds of things. There may be an emphasis on music. There may be an emphasis on Bible studies or, or what they're calling today community groups, I hear in some churches. They have these different things that they emphasize. Some do a lot of retreats and some do not do any retreats. It's no different in John's day, folks. When I said, uh, go find that shy person, I saw you get up there and boom, 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 and it's right away. You know, you guys know how to have fellowship. They had fellowship in that day. I remember being in India once and, and I, I get finished preaching and, and right after I'm finished preaching, they start moving the chairs away. And then the food comes out, and they're consuming all of this food for the next three hours, you know? And, and, and then they bring in the children from the neighborhood, and they start feeding them. I go, man, this is, this is a, a church that's alive, and it goes all day long. It's no different in John's day. We will get to, in the future weeks, to see those different churches. But the general greeting that's found here is in other New Testament letters by Paul and by Peter. What does John say here? John, to the seven churches of Asia, grace to you and peace. Folks, you can't go another second without grace. You can't go another minute without grace. You need to have grace. This is included here, I believe, to put some of that pastoral flavor in here for the readers. They need to hear it that John cares about 
their hearts, their minds, and what they're about to go into. They're about to go into tribulation, folks. They're about to go into persecution. And he knows it because he's seen it already. He's trying to make a point here that each church, no matter which church it is, needs that grace and needs that peace. Folks, depending on where such a letter is written, the implications for why these words are used may be different. Remember, there are seven churches. For each of them, there may be a specific reason. We don't know that. In the case of a persecuted church, grace and peace are absolutely necessary for the time. But here, John is alluding to the forthcoming tribulation, and he wants them to understand that. Grace and peace are necessary, not just a good thing. It's not just a good thing to end your letter in a grace and peace kind of... And, and I always end my lettings in blessings. Yeah, that's, that's very nice, but it, do you really mean it? This is something that you cannot be without. Grace and peace are needed, even if there is no tribulation. This past week, I also was sent a video. I was sent a video by Joseph White. Joseph is the son of Greg and Fushan White, who are serving in Ukraine. And it was a, a picture of he getting some goods together, getting some medical supplies together, and going over to Ukraine. That's grace. Bringing it, this is his 12th trip, I believe it's his 12th trip, going to the Ukraine to bring these things which are absolutely needed. They don't have heat. They're now trying to make stoves, okay? Uh, that's what Al, uh, Bruce Alvarez was telling me. They're trying to make stoves so they can put wood in it, but then they've got to have an exit for the smoke that comes from those stoves so that they don't choke people to death. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that that they're trying to do and trying to get done for the people that are there still in Ukraine. The church that's uh, in Ukraine, and I preached in this church on several occasions, is called Grace Bible Church. They need God's grace. Joseph was reminding me of that, bringing those things, those goods, what is, and not only medical goods, but there's other food items that they don't have anymore that they need. Remember this whole year, Ukraine, which is the breadbasket of Europe, of at least Eastern Europe, didn't have any goods planted. They're going to starve soon. That's where they're headed. So they need grace and peace. Where does this grace and peace come from? Grace and peace come from the Father. They come from the seven spirits and they come from Jesus Christ. As John gets into this explaining um, what's coming for these folks here in the seven churches He's telling him that the Trinity is clearly, very clearly involved in all of this. He says this, from him who is and who was and who is to come. God Almighty. God Almighty who has no beginning and has no ending. He's involved in this. His eternal existence is expressed here. His timelessness is communicated here. I know we all agree with that. We know he was, always was and always will be. But let's take a look at it anyway. From him who is. It's describing God's presence even in the midst of persecution and tribulation. God's always been involved in your life, folks. I don't care who you are. He's always been involved in your life. He is there whatever the difficulties are. Whatever the situation may be. He was there. Who was. Indicates that God is always part of the story. He was there to protect you in certain situations. I can remember one time before I was saved. Um, as you know, I was in sales, and we had a sales meeting um, for Ramada Hotels in the MGM Grand Hotel. And so we had to go to Vegas. We'd send our samples there. we set them up so that the hotel owners can come in and take a look at them. We're trying to sell as much as we can to make it worthwhile to even go there. And my two bosses come in from uh, New York. One's the sales manager and one is the vice president of the corporation, you know. And so they come in and, and they're there to party. I'm there and I actually asked my wife to come and she came into town with me. And so we're, we're staying at the MGM and we did a very, very fine job there. It was, it was good. We got to have dinner with the president of Ramada Hotels. I mean, all of this kind of stuff, you know. 
And, and so we were going to stay an extra couple of days. My bosses left. They went back to New York or wherever they went. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was my wife or it was me, said, you know, I'd rather go home. I'd rather go home. That night, there was a fire at the MGM Grand. Eighty-six people were killed. Eighty-six people were killed. We could have been there. I know I wasn't saved. And so I could have been left on the trash heap of rejecting the gospel. God was there in my life. And sometimes you don't even know what God protected you from. The car accident because you were a little bit late. You know, your kid took too long on the toilet or whatever. And he made you late and so you, you couldn't get out there and you missed that car accident. All of those kinds of things that happened. God was there. His hand was on it. I can tell you, I missed an order once because I was too late because it was a car accident. I was stuck on the freeway for three hours. I'm glad I missed that particular order because the person who took it messed it up so badly. Now that person couldn't do any business with him anymore and it was only for me. See, folks, you, you don't know what God is doing and how he's doing it. How did you come to know Christ? Were you actually looking for him? Well, if you were looking for him, why were you looking for him? He caused things in your life to cause you to want to look for him. Because you had no answers anywhere else. He was there in your past. And you say, well, I had a pretty wicked past. Folks, my position as the counselor at Grace Church, I've heard of really wicked pasts. But God still has directed you here today. Why? Why? We had a gentleman in Faith Builders who was killed in a motorcycle accident. And his brother came to see me. His brother was 17 years in prison for heroin usage. And so he came to me and he said, why did God kill my brother? I said, the better question is, why didn't he kill you? He left you alive for you to get, have an opportunity to get to know him. Your brother is in heaven worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is life is not the end of it, folks. This life is the beginning. But he's in heaven. You're here. Why not repent? Why not give your life to Christ? God's providence is all over your life. Sit down one day and start to think about it and where he's been acting in your life. God's providence, he brought you to himself, even though it may have been through a trial. And then, of course, uh, John goes on, and who is to come? God will be there in the future. That's what he's trying to give them that, that hope for. God, yes, was not only in my past, was not only now, but he's going to be in my future. And he's going to be there for me. He's going to be there for the trials and the tribulations that I have. The power of God in the past and in the future is indicated, and it's to give them great confidence, it's to give them that confidence for their present situation. This, this description here that's used by John is used a few other times in the book of Revelation. Look at uh, Revelation 4 with me, 4, 8. And it's the second part of that verse that I want to particularly look at. But in uh, Revelation 4, 8, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. It's also said in Revelation eleven seventeen. Revelation eleven seventeen, And it says there, we give... You thanks, O Lord God, praying and praising him, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. He's taking over. He's always been in control, folks. We may see the world is out of control, but he's still in control of how things go. He's still there. Now, there's also another one, one last one in 16.5. 16.5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. It's really pointing to his eternality. He's going to be there at the very end, folks, no matter what it is. 
This triune God that we worship is being described and being worshipped here in these words uh, by the Apostle John. And then he goes on in, back in Revelation chapter four, uh, 1, and he says this, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I have heard some ridiculous things trying to um, explain the seven spirits. Uh, I did listen to Benny Hinn once. <laughs> Only once. And that's what I heard him say. That the seven spirits are seven gods. That's not true, folks. Just want you to know that. It's not seven gods. Those seven spirits have nothing to do with the seven gods. We're going to explain that to you here. John is using these seven spirits here, and he's alluding to the completeness of the work of the Holy Spirit, because remember, the number seven is complete or perfect. It's trying to show you the completeness of that. And because he's doing that, he takes it out of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 4. You know, I was going to go back and see what I preached when I did Zechariah, but this is what it means now that I've gone to the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2. And it says, he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand uh, all of gold and its bowls on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Then look at verse 6. Then I, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by what? My spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's pointing out that the Holy Spirit is involved here. The Holy Spirit has control uh, here. The picture is that Zechariah was relying upon the seven spirits. They're meaning the Holy Spirit, and John is as well. The Greek word for uh, spirit is pneuma, and that's what's used here. While this particular word is used twice for angelic beings, it is not being used that way here. In the book of Revelation, when it talks about angels, it always says angelos. It always says angels there. The, the Greek word for it, angelos, is, is, is the word that's used there. Additionally, the idea that a created being, listen to this, I think this is even more um, affirming of this truth, the idea of a created being would be put in the same category with God the Father, and then we're going to see God uh, the Son in a little bit, is theologically, uh, it's not theologically palatable. One commentator said it this way, he says it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that you would put a created being with God the Father and God the Son. So why is this used? And from the seven spirits who were before the throne. Thank you for that great question. This is in reference to all the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Seven being the number of completion. I just want to make sure you have this in your mind. It emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. His role in church history hasn't changed. It was there in the beginning, and it will be there at the end. This use of seven is to indicate that the work of the Holy Spirit is a perfect work, a complete work, a totally complete work. The inclusion of the Holy Spirit in the opening lines of, of Revelation is to say that the third person of the Trinity is there also for the judgment of mankind. He was there at the um, creation. He's going to be there at the judgment of mankind. He's always been there. John also worships the Redeemer. We see that in verse 5. And it says there, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Folks, I, I got to tell you, this is one of the most profound descriptions of your Savior. To him who loves us. Folks, <laughs> this is in the present tense. It means not only does he love us now, but he's going to continue to love us throughout all of existence. 
He's never going to give up on us. You know, we look out there in the world. How many divorces are there? How many failed relationships are there? Love just seems to be turned on and off, just like you turn on and off the lights. But here, Christ loves you. He's never going to stop loving you. I don't know about you, but that, that makes my heart pretty content. My Lord loves me. I, I don't have anything to worry about. That's, that's such an incredible truth, folks. He loves us now, and he's going to continue to love them. Why is he saying it to these people? Because they're going to go through tribulation. Can you imagine having somebody knock on your door? Are there Christians living here? You know, would you, would you uh, say, oh, oh, no. Oh, no, there are no Christians here. Or would you stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because, folks, I'm looking at some stuff from coming out of China of people being attacked in China. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. And that's over a pandemic. What about over the gospel? What's happening there? Now, there are three descriptions that are going to be used here. Three descriptions of Jesus Christ that I believe are uh, extremely important for us to get. And, and I'm going to ask you at the same time to turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Just recently, I was given an a Evangelical Theological Society paper. And uh, I read it, you know, and I didn't realize how much interaction there was with the piece of scripture that I was going to be studying here in Revelation chapter 1. And this is what it says there um, in Revelation 1.5. You don't need to turn there. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This is the first description that I want us to make sure that we understand. The faithful witness. The faithful witness. It says in Psalm 89, verse 37, it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. It's giving us a picture that just as the moon is in the sky, Jesus Christ is always going to be there. It's speaking of the faithful witness of Jesus Christ. Think about this, folks. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is God incarnate, comes to earth, and he could do whatever he wants when he's here. But what is his faithful witness? And John, in the Gospel of John, he says, I come to tell you what the Father has told me. And he does that over and over and over. So he's about to go to the cross and they, they arrest him. Did, did he have to let himself be arrested? Did he have to let himself be dragged away? Did he have to let himself have a crown of thorns put on him? Did he have to let himself be whipped on the back uh, because of that? Did he have to stand before Pilate or Herod or any of those people? No. He's God. God incarnate. He could have just said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to step out of this. I don't need to be involved with this. No, he was our faithful witness to the end. Why, why would you say that here? Why would John be bringing that up here? Because those under tribulation need to be that faithful witness. You say, but I'm a Christian. I'm not going to be there at the tribulation. Well, that's good. But there's a tribulation before you get to the tribulation. There's a persecution before you get to the persecution. What are you going to do then? What are you going to do then? Are you going to be that faithful witness like Christ was for you? Because, see, if Christ doesn't go the whole way, and Christ doesn't take the cross, and Christ doesn't go to that cross and, and shed his blood, we are not redeemed. He's our faithful witness. He's faithful to the end. Jesus is the line of David. We've learned that already today when we're doing that little quiz there. And his line is going to endure forever. Jesus was the eminently faithful witness of the gospel. Look at Psalm 89, verse 36. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne of the, as the sun before me. 
it's going to be forever. I don't know about you, but that kind of confidence, that kind of, of, of discussion here just tells me I, I have much to be thankful for. I didn't do that. Christ had to do that. He had to spill his blood. I didn't spill my blood. I don't do anything. I actually sit back and wonder why in the world would he do it? I think that's the kind of thought that we need. Why would he save us? Why would he save me? The second description is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. Now, folks, this is not meaning that he died first. It means that he's the first to rise from the dead. Now, you say, oh, but there was somebody else that came before him, Lazarus. Yeah, but Lazarus still died, okay? Not only that, but Jesus, well, let's get into it. Colossians 1.8. 1.18, I'm sorry, 1.18. Colossians 1.18. Look what the scriptures have to say about Jesus. Colossians 1.18, it says there, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. When it says firstborn from the dead, it means he rose and went to heaven. Heaven wasn't opened until he was the firstborn from the dead. Um, he, he's the first fruits of the dead ones, if we want to put it that way. The first fruits of the dead ones. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, where is it? Okay, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were are asleep. Remember, these are dead ones that are there already. He's the first fruit. He may opened up heaven. For since by a man came death, by a man came, also came the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ had to live that perfect life. And that's what he did. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The, the man Adam couldn't do it. He failed. But the man Christ, tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin, went to the cross, shed his blood for us. He made it happen. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. What God sees is Jesus Christ's blood covering us. He sees his righteousness given to us. Let's finish that up. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. I got to tell you, what he did for us, Jesus conquered death. I am not afraid to die. There is no reason that anybody that's a Christian, should be afraid to die. We see the, <coughs> the preeminence of the one who paved the way for believers to enter into the presence of God. We get to go into the presence of God, a, a place that we don't deserve to go to. So the first description of Jesus here was his faithful witness. Then the second is he's the firstborn of the dead. Now the third description, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. In a sense, John is reflecting back to Psalm 89 once again. And he sees a direct correlation in fulfillment of that covenant here in Revelation. Jesus is sovereign over all his rulers. That is why, I got to tell you folks, <coughs> I'm not afraid of incompetent uh, government rulers. Not to mention any. I'm really not. God put them there. Think about it. Think about it. God put them there. Whether crooked or not, doesn't matter. Whether a dictatorship or not, it doesn't matter. God placed them there for his purposes. He's going to use that. Jesus is sovereign over all rulers, over all nations. And so I am not frightened of the foolishness of of leaders. Uh, yeah, does it disturb me, you know, when I see people get hurt? Sure does. Does it disturb me when uh, they, they force me to do things that I don't want to do? Sure. But if it comes to not worshiping, I'm going to be worshiping. 
Doesn't matter what the government says. Jesus rules. Jesus rules. And the foolishness of the governments are for his purposes. I got a few verses that I'd like to take a look at for us. Jeremiah chapter 23. Just so you can see, God is in control. Jeremiah 23, 5. Jeremiah 23.5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. We know what that means. That means Jesus Christ. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. That's what he will do. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. Not chapter 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations of you as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. There's no way around that. One last one, back to Zechariah. I know this is like a Bible hunt here, but Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and it says, There rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, not like um, current rulers of the world, he is just endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even as a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what he is. He's coming. He's going to take care of these things. And there's plenty of other verses that you can look at, Matthew 2.2 2 and Matthew 21.5 and, and others. So this threefold description that we have here, that is used here by John, is for the comfort of, of those seven churches. That's why he's writing that. He, they are going to see the impending judgment that's coming, the impending punishment that's coming, but we still find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in charge. They're in charge. There's nothing to worry about. I know parents with small children can be concerned I, I, as a grandparent, I, I'm concerned for my grandchildren. That doesn't take away the concern. But I can still understand that my Lord, my Savior, is in charge. He's going to allow happen what happens, and I have to allow him to be in charge and not try to take over from him. John starts his doxology of praise to Jesus with the testimony, and I already gave you a hint of it because I, I love it so much, in 1.5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. It's the shedding of blood, folks, that saves us. It's the shedding of blood that gives us opportunity to be in heaven with him. Again, I don't like using the, the Greek language very often or trying to you know, show that I know some of it. Uh, Dr. Thomas would be scold, scolding me right now. <laughs> but this is so very, very important. To him who loves us. The present tense there just grips my heart. He loves his children now. He loves you now. Now, you may be in some difficult situations. He loves you. You may have somebody else in your life that doesn't love you. You may have somebody else in your life that's persecuting you now, in a sense. Maybe you're even rejecting you. He loves you. That's a whole lot better than who that person is. I'm sorry, even if it's your spouse. He loves you now. And he's going to love you forever. Forever. The bondage you once had to sin has been unhinged I like that idea. I'm, I no longer have to do the things I used to do. That's what I thought when I first got saved. I don't have to do those things anymore. I can do what I want to do. 
the bondage you once had to that sin has been separated. Once you were a slave, now you are free of Satan and sin, but you are still a slave. You're a slave of Jesus Christ now. You see that in Romans chapter 6. We're not going to turn there. We don't have enough time. But that's where you find it. What has Jesus done? He has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see that back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Folks, this is incredible. These words were spoken back in in Exodus chapter 19. Would you go back there with me? Exodus 19? That's a long time before John's writing Revelation. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the, for all the earth is mine. Do you, do you see those words there? This is the promise of God to his people. But there's a condition. He says there, if you obey my voice. You know, folks, we, we don't live in the same time that the Jews did. We're called to obey. But even when we don't obey, God still has grace for us. Undeserved grace, for sure. It's not like the Jewish people. They, they kept doing these things over and over again. Maybe we are doing those things over and over again. But he has grace for those who are truly his. How do you know whether you're his or not? You have to come tonight. <laughs> Unabashed invitation. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. If they did that, they would have been a kingdom of priests. And, and, and that means that a Levitical priesthood wasn't necessary. Every one of us is a priest. Why? Because you bring your worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on your own. You, you don't need somebody to do it for you. One of the things that I noticed right away when I became a Christian is that it's not like a Roman Catholic worship service where you have this altar between you and the priest. That priest being something special. No, he's not anything special. I was an altar boy. They're not anything special. <laughs> but here we are all kingdom of priests in the sense that we worship the king. We worship the Holy One. He declared the Jewish nation able to do that, but unfortunately, because of their disobedience, they could not. This promise to the, the Hebrew nation was not actually fulfilled. Not because of God. God would have kept his word, but because the nation never fulfilled the action. As a matter of fact, I think it's Jeremiah 3.8. Uh, there, God is speaking to the nation, and he gives them a writ of divorce because of their harlotries, harlotries of going to worship other gods. And you know, we can take that into the New Testament. What kind of things do we worship? I don't mean you're bowing down to them and all of that, but what kind of things do we worship that exclude our God? The followers of Christ knew they were, in reality, they were a kingdom of priests. But they had to follow Christ in obedience. That was the, the ultimate. They had to follow him in obedience. Let's, let's look at 1 Peter. And uh, I need to chug along here pretty quick here. Sorry about that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And, and <laughs> this is where Christ, uh, Peter is the, uh, explaining who these people are, who we are. You also, as living stones, this is 1 Peter 2, 5, 
you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then we'll look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he's done for us. You know, he calls us a race. And as I look around, I see multiple races out here. No, I don't. I see one called the human race. The redeemed human race. That's what makes us ultimately different than the world. That's what makes us different than the world. You're here to proclaim to him, worship him, and the world's supposed to see that. I think about getting in my car early in the morning. Nobody sees me at 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30, whatever it is, I get in my car. We have some folks here probably start at 4 in the morning to drive up here. But you know what? They don't see us, but they see our life. We interact with them. There is a complete reality that in the millennial kingdom, this is something to think about, and beyond, there will be complete obedience. Oh, Lord, thank you. I got some hope. I, I, I always wonder, why in the world do I have to keep going back to asking God for forgiveness? Because I'm a wretched sinner. That's why we have to do that. Beloved, John is now declaring that believers are those chosen of God to be priests to our God. In a sense, we are in God's kingdom today and, and we are different. Being in the body of Christ, you live differently, or you should. You should be living differently than the citizens of this world. We love differently than the world. We care differently than the world. We proclaim the freedom of the prisoners differently than the world. Our world is about God. Years ago, when we first started coming to Grace Church, I, I knew that uh, there was this family that um, had a, a, a father who was a seminary, before the seminary was even here, professor. And, uh, and I asked the young man, because I was serving in children's ministry, I said to him, I, I said, what do you do for devotions? Oh, we don't do devotions. Couldn't believe it. I was almost knocked on my tuchus. And so I, I did have time with the dad, and I, I spoke to him. I said, so what do you do for family devotions? We don't do devotions. He said, all of life is a devotion of love to God. Everything you do is a devotion to God. You don't have to get out that special hour and make the kids sit there and they don't want to be there. You always have God involved in everything you do. Whether you get in the car to go on a ride, you know that you have to call upon him. And I went, you know, that's not a bad way to think about it. That's called redemptive living. That's called redemptive living. Do we have our Bible studies on, a, on occasion when the kids are growing up? Sure. But it wasn't something forced. It was something you want to do because you love him and what he's done for you. That was a great lesson for me, and I wasn't even in seminary yet. We do live different, folks. John concludes this doxology. And what does he do? He ascribes to Jesus' glory. What is glory? It's praise and honor. And he ascribes to him dominion, that's power and might. Remember, as John writes these words, he's already seen the tribulation coming. And he's going to entail, and he knows what it's going to entail. He knows the, the, the bodies that are going to get killed and all of that kind of stuff. This glory that John speaks of is the very essence of the king. This glory is native to him. It is who he is. Glorious. I want to finish the message today. But I, I wanted to finish it, and I knew I couldn't get to it. But I'd like to read it for us, if you don't mind. Because I do believe that this is part of the text. And it says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. 
Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's coming, folks. When, I don't know. I'd like to give you a date. I'd like to say that he woke me up last night and he told me it's going to be in 2023, you know, January 17th. No. That was the earthquake day, by the way. It's also the birth of my wife. <laughs> we, we have seen the blessings here today. Grace and peace. That's the blessing that we have as believers. We've seen the triune God make and keep promises because that's who he is. This word can always be relied upon and I can tell you the time I got saved, I, I said to myself that if I find anything wrong in here, I knew it's all wrong. And I'm still studying it 40 plus years later. And I haven't found anything wrong. Folks, this can be relied upon. If you don't know Jesus Christ, think about it. Where are you going to spend eternity? Don't mean to scare anybody. But there's only one of two places. I want you to be with me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for today. Thank you for this portion of scripture. It's so rich for my heart, so rich for my thinking. Lord God, I want to thank you for that uh, Evangelical Theological Society paper I read that uh, gave me some insight into Psalm 89. Lord God, continue to use your word. Continue to use your people to spread the message of hope and salvation. But ultimately, ultimately, the thing that needs to be done, Lord, is that we would repent and believe you and all that you've said. We pray this in your name. Amen.